Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, it looks like today we hit on the Great Molasses Flood, which occurred on January 15, 1919, in Boston's North End neighborhood. Now, the idea of a wave of molasses running through the streets of Boston perhaps makes you chuckle a bit. And you're no doubt thinking that this is going to be one of those quirky historical anecdotes you can share with your friends at the local pub. But make no mistake about it, this event was serious. Deadly serious. Perhaps the other common name for this event is more appropriate. The Boston Molasses Disaster. Let's see what happened. In the winter of 1915, the Purity Distilling Company at 529 Commercial Street built a new molasses storage tank. It was 90 feet in diameter and 50 feet high and could hold upwards of 2.3 million U.S. gallons. That would be equivalent to like three and a half Olympic-sized swimming pools. So we're talking about a lot of volume here. Perhaps you're wondering, what in the world would a company do with so much molasses? Well, remember, molasses can be fermented into ethanol, which is used not only in tasty alcoholic beverages, but is also a key ingredient in some munitions. In 1915, World War I was going on. And even though the U.S. wasn't in the war yet, we were helping to supply the Allies. This caused an increase in demand for industrial alcohol, and hence the building of the new molasses tank. Ships would tie up in Boston Harbor and offload molasses into the tank. There it would be stored until needed. A pipeline transferred the molasses from the tank to the actual distillery, which was located in Cambridge. In 1917, the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company bought Purity Distilling, so they're going to be the ones owning and operating things when the disaster occurs. On January 14, 1919, the day before the disaster, a ship from Puerto Rico with a cargo of molasses arrived in Boston Harbor. As was the usual practice, the molasses was warmed to reduce its viscosity to make it flow easier from the ship to the tank. When the offloading was done, the tank was full. On the following day, January 15th at about 12.30 p.m., the tank burst open and collapsed, releasing its 2.3 million gallons of molasses. What exactly caused this, we'll get to later. For now, let's just focus on the disaster. Eyewitness accounts say the ground shook, and there was a loud roar. Some likened it to the long, rumbling sound of a passing L train, but much louder. Others described it as a deep, growling thunderclap like bang. There were also those who said the rivets popping from the tank sounded like a machine gun. Now we all know that molasses is notoriously slow to pour. Think of pouring syrup on pancakes. It is approximately one and a half times as dense as water. Does that mean it slowly oozed down the street when the tank collapsed? 
No, certainly not. And let me preface my explanation by reminding you, as I have in several other episodes, that I am not a science teacher. So, the denser-than-water molasses sitting in its tank had a great deal of potential energy. When the tank collapsed, this energy was released. Because molasses is a non-Newtonian fluid, like ketchup, it would have moved as a gravity current, much like a mudslide or avalanche. The result was a wave that reached 25 feet high at its peak and moved through the streets at about 35 miles an hour. This wave carried a tremendous force that damaged building and caused six to completely collapse. The nearby elevated railway had its support girders crumpled, rendering that particular stretch of the line useless. Numerous vehicles were overturned and tossed along with the flood, with one truck being washed all the way into Boston Harbor. Several blocks surrounding the disaster ended up being flooded to a depth of two to three feet by the time the wave had run its course. People, horses, and other animals were hurled back by the wave itself or by the debris it drove. Some were crushed while others drowned. After the initial wave, the molasses, helped along by that cold January day, became more viscous, trapping those caught in it and making their rescue all the more difficult. In all, 21 people were killed and about 150 injured, along with numerous horses and other animals killed and injured. Many of those who were rescued suffered horrible coughing fits from throats clogged with molasses. The first responders on the scene were 116 cadets under the command of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket. This was a training ship from the Massachusetts Nautical School, which is now the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. They had been docked nearby and rushed to help. Some cadets waded into the molasses to try to rescue survivors, while others worked crowd control to keep curious onlookers from getting in the way. The Boston Police Department and the Red Cross, along with Army and Navy personnel, also quickly arrived on the scene and began pulling people out and tending to those who were wounded. Many rescuers worked throughout that night, and doctors and nurses set up a makeshift hospital in a nearby building. Rescuers found it extremely difficult to move through the molasses-covered wreckage to try to find victims. Despite this difficulty, rescue efforts went on for the next four days before the search for survivors was finally halted. After that, the situation changed to that of recovering the dead and cleaning up the area. Many of those who perished were so glazed over that they were hard to even identify. There were also a few victims whose bodies were washed into Boston Harbor. They were found weeks, or in a few cases, months, after the disaster. As for cleanup, well, that would prove to be rather problematic. The plan was to flush the molasses into Boston Harbor, using hoses attached to fire hydrants. Cleanup crews had little success with this. Remember, it was the middle of January in Boston, so the temperatures were chilly. While molasses doesn't harden, it did become more viscous, as I said earlier, and the result was an area coated in a sticky, congealed goo. 
with cleanup making little progress, one firefighter came up with a brilliant idea. Rather than use water from the fire hydrants, why not use seawater from Boston Harbor? His thinking was that perhaps the salt water would cut the molasses and make it easier to wash away. This idea worked, and slowly but surely, the cleanup started to gain ground. As more and more molasses was washed into Boston Harbor, its waters turned a shade of brown that would take months to dissipate. And when the streets were cleared, there were still the numerous flooded basements to be dealt with. Hydraulic pumps were brought in, and crews had to pump out each basement one by one throughout the affected area. Only after all this could rebuilding efforts begin. So it wasn't until about six months later that the area was, I guess you could say, back to normal. Of course, it would be even longer for all traces of the molasses to be washed away. Rescue workers, cleanup crews, and even people who just came to see the area all tracked molasses back through the streets. It spread to subway stations, train cars, and streetcars, payphone handsets, shops and businesses, and into people's private homes. Oh man, what a mess. With any large disaster, especially one that kills and injures so many people, the big question is, who's to blame? And that question was certainly being asked in Boston in the days following the tragedy. Mayor Andrew J. Peters personally toured the damaged area and called for an investigation. He also vowed that the city would aid the victims and their families in every way possible. City officials and experts investigating just days after the disaster pointed to rivets on the side of the tank giving way and causing the tank to rupture, though at this time they didn't want to issue any sort of formal finding. Later in the week, federal investigators showed up. Their conclusion was that some fermentation took place inside the tank, raising the pressure, and that, coupled with the tank's poor construction, led to its catastrophic failure. The tank's owners, U.S. Industrial Alcohol, of course disputed these claims. Their contention was that an outside force was the cause of the tank's failure. Specifically, they said that an anarchist group must have planted a bomb on the tank to intentionally destroy it. Anarchists? Really? Where did that come from? Well, realize that this took place during the time of the first Red Scare in the United States, where many people saw a threat from communists as a very real thing. Newspapers exacerbated these political fears and also played up the danger of various radical anarchy movements that were becoming popular as possible solutions to poverty. Anyway, that was the company's defense. A defense they'd even argue in court. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that works out for them in a few minutes. But before we get into any legal matters, let's see what exactly caused this disaster. During the past few decades, a number of studies have been conducted, and from these, we have a handful of factors that contributed to make this event so devastating. Let's start with the steel walls of the tank. They were about two-thirds of an inch thick at the bottom, and just under a third of an inch at the top. Modern structural engineers have said that these walls were too thin 
to support the weight of a full tank of molasses. Along with the two thin walls, we can add in a flawed rivet design. The stresses were too high on the rivet holes, and this is where cracks in the tank first formed. In its four years of use, molasses was pumped into the container a total of 29 times, but on only four of those occasions was the tank filled to capacity or near capacity, the fourth time, of course, being the day before the catastrophic failure. Walls that were too thin and rivet issues point to signs and negligence. Structural engineers of that era certainly knew better. But recall that the tank had been hurriedly built in 1915 to try to meet the increased demand for industrial alcohol for the war effort, as I said before. When built, the tank was not filled with water first to test it for flaws, and inspections from then on seemed to be practically non-existent. This was true under the original owners, the Purity Distilling Company, and carried through to its new owners, U.S. Industrial Alcohol. Warning signs were flat-out ignored. The tank made groaning noises every time molasses was pumped into it. Visible cracks had also started to form, ones that would be noticeable to even a cursory inspection. Some of the cracks were so severe that they actually leaked molasses. It was a common occurrence for neighborhood kids to bring cups to collect the sweet molasses as it dripped from the tank. On one occasion, a worker collected small shards of steel that had cracked off of the tank's walls. He brought this to the USIA treasurer's office as evidence of potential danger. The supposed response he got from the treasurer was, I don't know what you want me to do about it. The tank still stands. Finally, what engineers didn't know at the time was that the steel plates used for the tank, which we've already said were too thin, also came from a bad batch of steel. It had been mixed with too little manganese. This gave it a high transition temperature, making it more brittle when cooled below 59 degrees Fahrenheit. The air temperature on the day of the disaster was 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I'm not even going to pretend to understand the science of what I just said, so let me put it into words even I can understand. The cold day made the steel more brittle than it should have been, and that may have been the final straw that led to the disaster. By the way, some of the early Liberty ships built later on during World War II experienced a similar flaw with steel that was too brittle. So now let's revisit the question of who's to blame. From what I just said, it sounds like the tank failure was a combination of flawed materials, poor design, and negligence on the part of the owner. As a result, 119 residents filed a class action lawsuit against U.S. industrial alcohol. This was actually kind of a significant case. It was one of the first big class action suits in Massachusetts, and it's considered a milestone in paving the way for modern corporate regulation. U.S. industrial alcohol stuck to their, it must have been an anarchist bomb defense. One of the company lawyers even told the press, that if there had been any indication of weakness in the structure, 
It would have been noticed during daily inspections. <laughs> yeah, right. The trial dragged on for over three years. Over 3,000 witnesses were called, including a vast number of expert witnesses who were often in disagreement with each other. But when all was said and done, the court found that USIA was responsible and ordered them to pay $628,000 in damages. That would come out to a little over $9.8 million nowadays. The Boston Molasses disaster was, unfortunately, one of a number of industrial tragedies to take place during the first few decades of the 20th century. But talking about those other disasters, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again in two weeks.